Hi, I'm Jason Sachs, writer of the American Comic Book Chronicles, the 1970s, the 1980s, and the 1990s, available through Tomorrow's Publishing and through Amazon.com, and also of uh, the forthcoming Steve Gerber Conversations, which is in final production and will be available later this year through University Press of Mississippi. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. Before I get started, a couple uh, bit of notes to share. Uh, first of all, thanks to everyone who's tuning in. It's been thrilling to see my numbers uh, increase steadily week over week. Uh, it's been very cool to see everyone tune in. I hope you are enjoying the show. Please leave feedback on iTunes, um, on Twitter. I'm at Jason Sachs on Twitter. And uh, let me know what you think of the show. Also, you can reach out to me on Facebook or really anywhere else you can find my name. Um, as well, uh, we have launched a uh, Tumblr, which is intended to be a place for show notes, uh, images and other stuff that you might find uh, especially interesting based on this episode. So if you listen to the episode a couple weeks ago on comic-based TV shows, we have a selection of comic-based TV show moments posted there that I think you might enjoy. That's at comicscavalcade.tumblr.com, C-O-M-I-C-S, cavalcade.tumblr.com. This week's episode is part two, covering the uh, distribution of comic books in America, covering the 1980s and the 1990s, and then giving a quick view of how we got to this bizarre place that we are in the industry. But we'll get to that in a moment. So before I start this week, I want to share these words about the comic industry from longtime retailer Brian Hibbs. Um, for about 25 years now, maybe even longer, Hibbs has been writing his Tilting at Windmills column, and he's famous for, or maybe notorious for, being a very tough critic of comics. But here's what he says about the direct sales comic market in a presentation to retailers recently. Hibbs said, I believe the direct market is one of the greatest creations in the history of the intersection of art and commerce. Look, we are a self-created market of entrepreneurs folks who wear the passion for what we do on our sleeves every waking hour. We are thousands of independent retailers and creators, and yes, publishers, who do the things we do because we believe that what we're in what we're selling, and more, we burn to do it. Nothing delights us more than seeing the spark we hold glowing in our hearts and minds and watching it ignite in the hearts and minds of another. If we didn't exist, people would be wistfully dreaming about a system like ours. Go ask, say, poets, if they wouldn't do anything to have an independent, focused, and passionate market like ours. We are a market that took the ashy embers of a medium that had been crushed by Senate hearings and cultural irrelevance, a medium that had been utterly wit written off as only viable for subliterate morons, and helped them fan into a flame that is now the molten core of a greater entertainment industry. For the most part, those writers and directors making the TV shows and movies, as well as the teachers and librarians spreading the word to the youngest generations, have been able to do so only because of our hard, long years in the trenches. Great work, great words from Brian Hibbs, and a good kind of perspective on the fact that despite how messed up the comics distribution industry is in America, that we're still fighting God's war. We're still creating amazing work that is getting in the hands of people and changing lives, adding to lives, making things better in many ways for many people. When we left last week's episode of Classic Comics Cavalcade, we were discussing the comic book distribution system in America as it had evolved by the early 1980s. 
By that time, there were over a dozen comic distributors scattered around the country, mainly setting up warehouses and serving accounts in the same city or region in which they were set up. There were specific comics distributors in Southern California, Heroes World in the New York metro area, and the obvious Comics Hawaii, among many, many more. It was a small business, but thriving as the comics market boomed. Many distributors, like Mile High, owned comic shops, so they had an easy place to sell their wares. Others, like Sunrise Distribution, started comic lines. In fact, Sunrise created several lines and took over several more. Our recent podcast with Tom Moore goes into that, excuse me, Tom Mason goes into that in a lot of detail, and it's a pretty great listen, if you ask me. But by 1983 or so, with a few companies moving in and out of the business, the industry had coalesced around the idea of small regional companies, which would, could serve their stores consistently. They represented an interesting sort of small business, which was, and still is, common in America, the regional distributor. That's still true in some businesses, including the newsstand distribution business. And unless something strange, amazing, or unforeseen happened, these businesses would putter along with small but decent profits built on small location relationships. Even in the mid in the crazy 1986 to 1988 comics boom, boom, uh, boom, bust, and boom didn't change the industry too much. I'll get into that mind-boggling sequence of events in the future show, but suffice it to say that an astonishing amount of money rushed into the comics industry built on speculation on black and white comics based on the Ninja Turtles and rushed out just as quickly as that boomlet closed. Then it rushed back in again when the first Tim Burton Batman movie hit like the blockbuster it was fated to be. In fact, many distributors were part of a growing business because comics were shifting more and more from being the kind of market you could find at any newsstand, drugstore, or supermarket across the country and became something that could be exclusively found at comic shops. That was a double-edged sword for the mainstream comics companies, a kind of deal with the devil, which helped them avoid the pain of returned comics, but also shrunk the number of places a non-comic reader could find the latest Superman or Fantastic Four. But, in the wake of the Burtman Batman, that direct market was plenty big enough for most retailers and stores to make healthy money. The market consolidated during that time. It's a fascinating story to me. In a two-week buying spree in 1990, Diamond Comics Distributors, the largest company in America, snapped up Second Genesis of Oregon and Destiny from Seattle. Second Genesis had previously purchased Sunrise Distributors and Comex, two other regional distributors. In a pattern the company would follow for many of its purchases in the future, Diamond kept executives and staff at the companies intact. But after that purchase, the Comics Journal reported in 1990 that Diamond was close to a 50% control of the comics market nationwide. Diamond also expanded internationally, announcing in September 1992 their purchase of, of Titan distributors in the UK. It was during 1992 and into 1993 that the comic book market around the world was booming as it never had before. By early 1993, comics were experiencing the greatest sales the industry had ever seen, with several mainstream comics selling in their millions of copies. The reasons for the boom are complex and fascinating, and I'm sure I'll get to them in future podcasts. But Diamond, Capital City, and their shrinking number of competitors were able to ride that wave. By the way, if you are inclined to read a book, the American Comp Chronicles of the 1990s gives you a great and detailed view as to why and how the, the market uh, exploded in uh, 1990, 91, 92, into 93, and then how it began collapsing in late 1993 and into 90, 1994. 
That boom couldn't last forever, and it didn't. The devastating 1993-94 market crash saw comics House of Cards crash down. And it really is kind of a house of cards. It's a market that was often built on speculation, on uh, transient interest in the comics industry, and everything just kind of collapsed uh, or evaporated, maybe is a better word, out of a uh, from euphoria to a feeling of utter despair. It's been reported that half the comic shops in America shut down during that period. That number is inflated by a huge amount of card stores which invested in comics and then moved out of the field. And many observers claim that the speculation was the main cause, and it was a contributing factor. But just as important was the financial squeeze that many shop owners felt. Retailer Jim Hanley was quoted as saying, In 1993, our sales were up, but profits were down. Our expenses grew faster than our sales, and our sales patterns were unlike anything we would normally have seen. When you see your sales going up like that, you think you can afford to spend money. And we opened a store in August that we probably shouldn't have. We added staff and corporate overhead to prepare for what we were going to see at the end of the year. And just at the same time that we were ramping up our expenses, sales were going in the opposite direction. Every month you try to convince yourself, well, it's bad this month, but it's got to get better next month. And next month it kept getting worse. You do that for a few months, realize you're in a big hole, and you cut expenses, which we did. But that doesn't mean you can make up for money you lost during those months. A report in the Comics Journal put this decline in stark terms. April 1993, bolstered by DC's marketing of The Return of Superman, saw, saw dollar orders jump 50% from March. 50%. And the industry had grown by as much as 400% from January 1992. Between June and October, however, the market shrunk almost another 200%. Combined with late shipping product, which tied up precious cash reserve, reserves, the comics market took a huge tumble. That include distributors. The same journal article quotes Ivan Snyder, president of Heroes World Distribution, remember that name, as saying, Distributors have been hurt as badly, if not worse, than a lot of retailers have been. The attrition of retail stores has affected us with bad debts and excess stock. And there are stories from the time of shops having tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of unsold stock in their back room. Um, there's a Comics Journal article that notes that one retailer... Uh, one large store had uh, almost a hundred thousand image comics alone that could not be sold that were stuck in their in their back room. I've mentioned in the previous podcast that uh, comic like Turok Dinosaur Hunter, which sold seven hundred fifty thousand copies the day it was released, uh, may have had fifty thousand copies actually reach re- uh, readers. This is on top of many retailers having unsold copies of the adjectiveless Spider-Man number one from 1991, which sold 8.2 million copies to retail, but maybe sold one eighth of that to actual consumers. It's a lot of excess stock. That's a lot of bad debt. That's a lot of companies that had to go out of business producing a ripple effect, which affected everybody nationwide. By 1994, things had stabilized a little bit. Most of the speculators had left the market, and sales began a slow but steady rise. Retailer Chuck Rosansky estimated that in 1994, Diamond controlled 45% of the distribution market in America, and Capital City, their chief rival, controlled 40%, but soon the bottom would drop out once again. Almost from the beginning of the strong direct sales market, nervous retailers speculated that Marvel was looking to invade their territory. 
By the end of 1994, Marvel stores remained just an idea, but Marvel had already begun selling direct-to-consumers via a mail-order system coined Marvel Mart. The first Marvel Mart catalog appeared as an insert in X-Men Adventures No. 4, May 94, a comic released to both newsstands and direct market stores. The cover blurb of the insert promised eight pages stuffed to the staples with hard-to-find mighty Marvel merchandise. And the interior pages advertised a diverse selection of material, not only fresh hardcover books and trade paperbacks like Marvel Masterworks and their greatest battles of the Avengers, but also branded products such as caps, pins, posters, and phone cards. Remember phone cards? You could actually like buy this kind of plastic card that had a special phone code that allowed you to dial long distance uh, at a discount. It was a 90s thing. Ask your dad. Many of the items listed in the catalog were already available in mainstream retail stores, as well as in comic shops. What took most comic book retailers by surprise was that Marvel Mart also offered recent back issues, including those of such hot series as Daredevil the Man Without Fear. Back issues were traditionally available only through specialty retailers, who used them as a way of generating revenue from excess stock. Marvel Mart, therefore, encroached on the traditional role such stores had in the market. Making matters worse, the retail prices listed in Marvel's catalog were lower than what most shops charged. Uh, in, included in Marvel Mart catalog was ads for Marvels, which had just come out and was a surprise hit. Um, Marvel advertised copies of Marvels number one at five dollars, the original cover price, where stores were selling it for ten or fifteen dollars. Uh, a semi-savvy teenager picking up X Men Adventures could. Uh, buy this comic for less than half they would have bought at their local store. In fact, they could have potentially then turned it around and sold it immediately for a nice little profit. Not surprisingly, retailers around the country were furious about Marvel Mart. They didn't hold back their anger. Many expressed concern that the catalog was merely Marvel's first step towards pushing retailers out of business in favor of stores owned and run by the company. There was a rumor at the time that Marvel was looking into starting their own retail stores, although it appears that Marvel was looking beyond just selling comics. There were stories of them opening a store similar to Disney stores or the then extant Warner Brothers stores, which kind of sold products that were based on characters, you know, plushies and other stuff uh, featuring these characters. Uh, it's pretty obvious that with the with the mall traffic that Marvel was looking into getting into, and they kicked them pretty far down the road in that, that they weren't exclusively going to sell comics, or even that comics were a big part of um, what they were expecting to make their money off of. Interesting precursor to where we are today, in fact, as a market where I think Marvel makes very little bit, very little of their money actually from comics. They just treat comics as an IP factory. Many retailers expressed concern that the Marvel Mart catalog was merely Marvel's first step towards pushing retailers out of business in favor of stores owned and run by the company, as I said. Tensions ran high. Walter Wang, co-owner of a comic book distributor called Comics Unlimited Limited, included a diatribe with his April 1994 Dear Valued Retailer monthly newsletter. Beginning with the capitalized declaration, We're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore! Wang's letter advised retailers to, quote, reduce Marvel's importance by issuing a wake-up call to the House of Ideas. He went on to instruct his clients to promote other direct market-friendly publishers and reduce your Marvel back-issue budget. It's a pretty amazing letter, really, and well worth reading in full in the show notes on comicscavalcade.tumblr.com. Uh, I 
again, it's uh, available on Tumblr and along with some other notes from this piece that I think you will find interesting if you're looking at reading more about this. Uh, on May 18th, just weeks after the dissemination of Wang's letter, Marvel retaliated by discontinuing sales to Comics Unlimited. Soon afterwards, Wang sold his company to Diamond, increasing Diamond's market share. He had no choice. He couldn't sell Marvels. Marvels were between a third and 40% of his entire uh, distribution. And without the availability of their books, there was just no way to make any money. Other entrepreneurs would soon follow Wang's lead as Diamond continued gobbling up its smallest competitors. Essentially, the comics distribution market was down to two companies, Diamond and Capital City, and a handful of smaller companies. One of those smaller companies was Heroes World. The next shoe dropped at the end of the year. On December 28, 1994, Marvel purchased New Jersey-based Heroes World Distribution. Created and co-owned by Marvel's former head of marketing, Ivan Snyder, Heroes World controlled 8% of the market share among distributors nationwide and specialized in distribution to shops on the Atlantic seaboard. Heroes World also hadn't quite climbed out of its very weak financial condition, so Snyder and his partners were able to avoid a lot of debt by selling the company. Retailers knew that Marvel had bigger ambitions from Heroes, for Heroes World than just the urban East Coast, and rumors abounded throughout the industry that Marvel would soon be distributing its own comics exclusively through Heroes World. Those rumors proved to be well-founded. The purchase set off all kinds of alarms among retailers and distributors. Bill Leibowitz, head of retailer clearinghouse, the Direct Line Group, summed up what the mood was like in January 1995. The phones, faxes, email, industry magazines, and newspapers are burning up with speculation, prediction, and general paranoia. Some of the rumors and speculations say that Marvel is about to destroy the direct market. Retailers will be hit with declining profit margins, increased cover prices, and erratic sources of supply. Many of the fears Leibowitz expressed turned out to be well-founded. On March 3rd, Marvel publicly announced that effective July 1st, 1995, Heroes World will become the exclusive distributor of Marvel Comics throughout the world. Essentially, Marvel became its own distributor, which meant that retailers who didn't have an account with Heroes World could no longer have access to new Marvel releases. No one could deny that traffic and sales were down, but many believe Marvel's move to stealth distribution would only make matters worse. Indeed, those predictions came true in ways that most professionals could not have expected. The radical move to an exclusive distribution model changed the way comics had been distributed in America for over two decades. From 1979 to 1995, as we talked about in the last episode, retailers could buy a full line of publications from one distributor, who was often centered in the same region of the country as the comic shop. That model kept communications, reorders, and bookkeeping simple for most stores. Retailers were eligible for discounts based on their total sales volume across all publishers. With the new system, however, all comic shops would have to use at least two distributors. They needed Heroes World to provide them with Marvel books, and another distributor to provide them with books from all the other publishers. As a result, most retailers could no longer take advantage of the highest possible discount threshold. Lower discounts meant lower profit margins. That vicious cycle, in turn, caused even more stores to close in 1995. As one observer stated, good stores are closing as well. The market has shrunk dramatically. People who used to be able to make a living could no longer sell enough comics to keep the doors open and the lights on. 
In addition, the shift also required more complicated bookkeeping, reorder, and communication systems. This was a problem that had no solution because no retailer could remain in business without selling Marvel comics, even if it meant cutting profit margin to the bone. Marvel represents somewhere between the profit margin and the entire profit center of a great majority of comic shops, reported one magazine. The retailers have to tighten their belts and try to make a new system work. One lifeline for many stores was Magic the Gathering. Others started selling Beanie Babies. Others just went out of business. Retailer Chuck Rosansky reported that all the surviving direct market comics distributors suddenly found their overall sales volume reduced by 35 to 40%, while their operating costs remained constant. In a business where even a single point of discount or volume could translate into huge differences in earnings, these massive sales losses and sales volume were simply not sustainable. Adding insult to injury, the Northeast-based Heroes World had significant problems managing the large influx of new business from around the country. Its computer systems simply couldn't handle all the new retailers. Packages were slow to relieve Heroes World warehouses, and retailers found it almost impossible to receive crucial orders. Here's one report from one distributor, Howard Beck. He said, In one year, my discount has dropped 10%, from 45% to 35%. I pay shipping for my books. Reorders stink. Marvel has canceled this year's retailer meeting. Last August, they replaced my order, misplaced my order disc, and while they had my hard copy, they did not think it necessary to contact me. That meant I did not receive any new books that month. When it was brought to their attention this had cost me almost $200 per week, their response was, these things happen. Soon after, I received my confirmation for September and discovered they had multiplied all my books by a factor of 10. Rosansky adds another story, saying in his blog, The first week the Heroes World exclusively distributed Marvel Comics, there were thousands of calls made to the New Jersey Heroes World headquarters to report problems. A new phone system had been installed in anticipation of this possibility, but it was somehow forgotten to ventilate the room where the phone switching equipment was stored. As a result, the internal heat generated by the new equipment caused the entire Heroes World phone system to shut down for three days. Imagine being a comics retailer with no new Marvel comics that week, irate fans screaming at you and no way to reach anyone at Heroes World. The frustration and anger levels among comics retailers were as high as I've ever seen them during my 34-year tenure in the comics business. To this day, I still hear from former comics retailers who exited the business during this awful period who still harbor venomous thoughts towards everyone involved with Heroes World. Consent, and there's tons to read on this, and it's a fascinating story. Uh, uh, it, it's just uh, the, the, the arrival and havoc wreaked by the creation of Heroes World was just insane. Um, consensus grew in early 1995 that all publishers needed to counter Marvel's move by arranging their own exclusive relationship with a distributor, lest they lose access to comic shops and become irrelevant. All eyes turned to DC Comics. As the country's second largest comic book company, DC would pave the way for the remaining publishers. Diamond quickly emerged as a leading contender for DC's business. And on April 26, 1995, DC officially went exclusive with Diamond. DC Vice President and Publisher Paul Levitz declared in an internal memo, We signed with Diamond yesterday. 
This deal has far-reaching benefits for DC, and though it was only possible in the wake of Marvel's acquisition of Heroes World, it leaves us in a far superior position to theirs. Though Capital City claimed the deal was an inside joke in the industry, Levitz trumpeted the fact that DC captures the benefits of exclusive distribution without either cost of distribution or cost of buildup. In effect, that DC gets an immediate savings of 2 to $3 million annually on distribution. Besides receiving a safe harbor at a friendly new home, DC also gained the opportunity to buy Diamond outright after 10 years. Thus, Levitz and his team succeeded in signing a strategic partnership which, helped, which would help provide them long-term stability. That contract was renewed after 10 years in 2005 and then uh, for an additional five-year period. And then in 2005, it was allowed to expire. So DC no longer has the right to purchase, Hero, uh, to purchase Diamond Comics distribution. With Marvel and DC exclusive, most other publishers rapidly followed suit. Image, the third largest publisher in America with a 12% market share, and Dark Horse, the fourth largest with a 5% market share, each signed exclusive contracts with Diamond in July. Valiant, the fifth largest publisher with a 3% market share, joined them in August. Retailer Rosansky reports he heard, quote, The people who spoke to me after the fact from Dark Horse and Image expressed dismay that Capital City's management tried to browbeat them into accepting contact terms that were less than what Diamond was offering them. After weighing the two distributors' proposals, they felt they had no choice but to accept Diamond's offer. When the dust finally settled, nearly every independent publisher went exclusive with Diamond. Capital City, the country's second-largest distributor, could only ink deals with much smaller Kitchen Sink Press, manga publisher Viz Comics, and a handful of others. The remaining publishers, including Warp Graphics and Fanographics Books, opted to ship with both Capital and Diamond, but the writing was on the wall. Rebuffed by all but the, all the best-selling comic publishers, Capital City's days were numbered, even after obtaining out-of-court breach-of-contract settlements from Marvel and DC. All this change led to a mood of deep uncertainty among comics professionals. As one observer commented, computer bulletin board systems are littered with apocalyptic predictions, as are the letters pages of every industry trade publication. Everyone is scared of the future, and no one is devoid of an opinion of what that future will be. It's interesting, because I just uh, about 10 minutes ago talked about another case, uh, the uh, Marvel Mart story, where uh, the same lines and same areas of communication were also lit up with anger, frustration, uh, and and just general pissed offedness about the industry, um, which leads me to kind of two thoughts. One is, wow, this place was really messed up at the time. Uh, it was a terrible industry to be in. And second, Wow, are some of these people in comics a bit of a prima donna? Are they overreacting just a little bit? I don't know. This is a pretty major landslide of events. And uh, we could see the bankruptcies coming one after the next for a number of different companies. Um, it was an uphill battle for Capital City to stay in business. As Jay Bull, owner of the Comics Kingdom store in Baltimore, reported, Capital City only had one good exclusive comic that I needed, The Crow. To remain in business, Capital had needed to figure out a way to recover lost accounts and to get more people more interested in more books than just one or two small comics. 
In early 1996, Capital Owners boldly offered to take over distribution from Marvel Comics from Beleaguer's Heroes World. However, a deal never came to fruition as Marvel signed with R.R. Donnelly, a company with no experience in comics, to help them get their books out. Capital's income continued to drop to the point where annual revenue was projected to be half the amount of the previous year. As Capital's president, John Davis, reported, when we got our August numbers this year, they were down below our July orders, which were below our June orders. Since September is typically a down month, we thought we would be out of business within a month or two. A Baltimore Sun article from around the same time estimated that Diamond controlled about 80% of the direct sales market outside of Heroes World generating $200 million in sales, while Capital City, which controlled 20%, sold only some $50 million in profit. On July 26, 1996, after months of rumors about its impending demise, Capital City was purchased by Diamond. As part of the deal, Capital's owners sold Diamond their distribution centers and home office. In exchange, Diamond agreed to assume Capital's $7 million in debt and its key capital staffers to its team in order to help provide continuity. After over 15 years in the industry, Capital City Distribution was now relegated to the annals of comic book history. By acquiring Capital's accounts, Diamond added much-wanted stability to the direct market, as there were now only two distributors for retailers to deal with, Heroes World for Marvel Comics and Diamond for everything else. The simpler cash flow and accounting brought about by Diamond's purchase of Capital City helped slow the weakening of store profitability, and with eight, within 18 months, Diamond retired all of Capital's old debt. And by the way, they kept many of people, mainly of uh, Capital's employees, on board. In fact, many of them are still with them today or worked for them for 20 years or longer. On the other hand, with its purchase of Capital City, Diamond moved one step closer to becoming a de facto monopoly in the distribution of comic books. As retailer Bob Gray explained, antitrust laws were the first question that entered many thoughts about about Diamond's market dominance. A comics distribution segment without competition is a frightening thought to many retailers and publishers. So I want to emphasize this quickly here. The fact that uh, Diamond bought capital wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, there was a, a nice chance for the company, the country rather, to coalesce around one distributor and cut down on sales and increase profits. It's hard to overestimate how complicated the competition and need for uh, multiple distributors was at the time. And this gave the industry kind of a main, a real point of stability at a point that it really needed it. So yeah, antitrust, but at the same time, maybe the best way to move forward as a company. And in fact, there would soon be no more competition in the American comic book distribution market because Marvel threw in the towel on Heroes World at the end of 1996, itself turning exclusive with Diamond Distribution. The monopoly was in place. For the last 23 years, this monopoly has controlled the distribution of comic books to comic shops in America. It's interesting, too. Marvel closed down Heroes World so quietly. The creation of Heroes World, the purchase of Heroes World, was an enormous event in the industry, an earthquake that shook the industry from it to its very foundation. But as happened multiple times with Marvel, the conclusion of that trend, the end of that craziness, was kind of a whimper. Uh 
Diamond's monopolistic dominance would eventually prompt an investigation by the United States Department of Justice's Antitrust Division in the summer of 1997. On December 6, 2000, the DOJ determined that allegations into, into monopolistic practices were unwarranted. Though Diamond had a monopoly in American comic dis- direct sales comic distribution, they did not have a monopoly in book distribution. In other words, because stores like Barnes & Noble sell comics and graphic novels through a distributor, Diamond is not a monopoly. Also, at least one retailer testified to the Department of Justice that it was a benign monopoly, that without Diamond, uh, the comics market would have no one to sell their books, or it would be too much of a free-for-all for things to be uh, able to be sustained. So that's where we are today, basically one company. It's been that way for 23 years. Who knows if this will ever change? There was hope that companies like Comixology and the big monster in the room, Amazon, would be able to change things, but we're not seeing that. Well, are we? There's been rumors, which I don't tend to believe, that Disney is going to be getting out of creating and distributing Marvel Comics. IDW has certainly been increasing their presence with Marvel and Disney books. So, I mean, you can see a world where IDW is distributing or selling Marvel books. But how would they get to comic shops and how would they get to other places? Um, It seems that Diamond, unfortunately, is here to stay. At the end of the day, what started as a place where, where dozens of companies could make a reasonable living is a place where one company dominates everything. That's America 2019, and that's this week's classic comics, Cavalcade. Thanks for listening. Oh, thank you.